0: Welcome everyone to episode 24 of Curse Land, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curse Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. For longer than anyone could remember, the village of Yiwei had worn, in its orchards and under its eaves, clay-colored globes of paper that hissed and fizzed with wasps. The villagers maintained an uneasy peace with their neighbors for many years, exercising inimitable tact and circumspection. But it all ended the day a boy, digging in the riverbed, found a stone whose balance and weight pleased him. With this, he thought, he could hit a sparrow in flight. There were no sparrows to be seen, but a paper ball hung low and inviting nearby. He considered it for a moment, head cocked, then aimed, and threw. Much later, after he had been plastered and soothed, his mother scalded the fallen nest until the wasps seething in the paper were dead. In this way it was discovered that the wasp nests of Yi Wei dipped in hot water, unfurled into beautifully accurate maps of provinces near and far, inked in vegetable pigments and labeled in careful mandarin that could be distinguished beneath a microscope. The villagers' subsequent incursions with bee veils and kettles of boiling water soon diminished the prosperous population to a handful. Commanded by a single, stubborn foundress, the survivors folded a new nest in the shape of a paper boat, provisioned it with fallen apricots and squash blooms, and launched themselves onto the river, Browsing cows and children fled the riverbanks as they drifted downstream, piping sea shanties. At last, forty miles south from where they had begun, their craft snagged on an upthrust stick and sank. Only one drowned in the evacuation, weighed down with the remains of an apricot. They reconvened upon a stump and looked about themselves. "'It's a good place to land,' the foundress said in her sweet soprano." Examining the first rough maps that the scouts brought back. There were plenty of caterpillars, oaks for ink galls, fruiting brambles, and no signs of other wasps. A colony of bees had hived in a split oak two miles away. Once we are established, we will, of course, send a delegation to collect tribute. We will not make the same mistakes as before. Ours is a race of explorers and scientists, cartographers and philosophers and to rest and grow slothful, is to die. Once we are established here, we will expand. It took two weeks to complete the nurseries with their paper mobiles, and then another month to reconstruct the great library and fill the pigeonholes with what the oldest cartographers could remember of their lost maps. Their comings and goings did not go unnoticed. An ambassador from the Beehive arrived with an ultimatum and was promptly executed. Her wings were made into stained glass windows for the council chamber, and her stinger was returned to the hive in a paper envelope. The second ambassador came with altered attitude and a proposal to divide the bees' kingdom evenly between the two governments, retaining pollen and water rights for the bees as an acknowledgment of the pre-existing claims of a free people to the natural resources of a common territory, she hummed. The wasps of the council were gracious and only divested the envoy of her sting. She survived just long enough to deliver her account to the hive. The third ambassador arrived with a ball of wax on the tip of her stinger and was better received. "'You understand, we are not refugees applying for recognition of a token territorial sovereignty,' the foundress said, as attendants served him nectars and paper horns. "'Nor are we negotiating with you as equal states.' Those were the assumptions of your late predecessors. They were mistaken. I trust I will do better, the diplomat said stiffly. She was older than the others, and the hairs of her thorax were sparse and faded. I do hope so. Unlike them, I have complete authority to speak for the Hive. You have propositions for us? That's clear enough. We are prepared to listen. Oh, good. The foundress drained her horn and took another. Yours is an old and highly cultured society, despite the indolence of your ruler, which we understand to be a racial rather than personal proclivity. You have laws and traditional dances and mathematicians and principles, which, of course, we do respect. Your terms, please. She smiled. Since there is a local population of tussa moths which we prefer for incubation, there is no need for anything so unrepublican as slavery. If you refrain from insurrection, you may keep your self-rule. But we will take a fifth of your stores in an ordinary year, and a tenth in drought years, and one of every hundred larvae. To eat? Her aunt trembled with revulsion. Only if food is scarce. No. They will be raised among us and learn our ways and our arts, and they will serve as officials and bureaucrats among you. It'll be to your advantage, you see. The diplomat paused for a moment looking at nothing at all. Finally, she said, a tenth in a good year. Our terms, the foundress said, are not negotiable. The guards shifted among themselves, clinking the plates of their armor and shifting the gleaming points of their stings. I don't have a choice, do I? The choice is enslavement or cooperation, the foundress said. For your hive, I mean. You might choose something else, certainly. Certainly but they have tens of thousands to replace you with. The diplomat bent her head. I am old, she said. I have served the hive all my life, in every fashion. My loyalty is to my hive, and I will do what is best for it. I am so very glad. I ask you, I beg you, to wait three or four days to impose your terms. I will be dead by then, and I will not see my sisters become a servile people. The Foundress clicked her claws together. Is the delaying of business a custom of yours? We have no such practice. You will have the honor of watching us elevate your sisters to moral and technological heights you could never imagine. The diplomat shivered. Go back to your queen, my dear. Tell them the good news. It was a crisis for the constitutional monarchy. A riot broke out in District 6, destroying the royal waxworks and toppling the mousebone monuments before it was brutally suppressed. The queen had to be calmed with large doses of jelly after she burst into tears on her minister's shoulders. "'Your Majesty,' said one, "'it's not a matter for your concern. Be at peace.' "'These are my children,' she said, sniffling. "'You would feel for them, too, were you a mother.' Thankfully, I am not, the minister said briskly, so to business. War is out of the question, another said. Their forces are vastly superior. We outnumber them three hundred to one. They are experienced fighters. Sixty of us would die for each of theirs. We might drive them away, but it would cost us most of the hive and possibly our queen. The queen began weeping noisily again and had to be cleaned and comforted. Have we any alternatives? There was a small silence. Very well, then. The terms of the relationship were copied out, at the wasps' direction, on small paper plaques embedded in propolis and wax around the hive. As paper and ink were new substances to the bees, they jostled and touched and tasted the bills until the paper fell to pieces. The wasps sent to oversee the installation did not take this kindly. Several civilians died before it was established that the bees could not read the UA dialect. Thereafter, the hive's chemists were charged with compounding pheromones complex enough to encode the terms of the treaty. These were applied to the papers so that both species could inspect them and comprehend the relationship between the two states. Whereas the hive before the wasp infestation had been busy but content, the bees now lived in desperation. The natural terms of their lives were cut short by the need to gather enough honey for both the hive and the wasp nest. As they traveled farther and farther afield in search of nectar, they stopped singing. They danced their findings grimly, without joy. The queen herself grew gaunt and thin from breeding replacements, and certain ministers who understood such matters began feeding royal jelly to the strongest larvae. Meanwhile, the wasps grew sleek and strong. Cadres of scholars, cartographers, botanists, and soldiers were dispatched on the river in small floating nests caulked with beeswax and loaded with rations of honeycomb to chart the unknown lands to the south. Those who returned bore beautiful maps with towns and farms and alien populations of wasps carefully noted in blue and purple ink, and these, once studied by the foundress and her generals, were carefully filed away in the depths of the great library for their southern advance in the new year. The bees adopted by the wasps were first trained to clerical tasks, but once it was determined that they could be taught to read and write, they were assigned to some of the reconnaissance missions. The brightest students, gifted at trigonometry and angles, were educated beside the cartographers themselves and proved valuable assistants. They learned not to see the thick green caterpillars led on silver chains, or the dead bees fed to the wasp brood. It was easier that way. When the old queen died, they did not mourn. By the sheerest of accidents, one of the bees trained as a cartographer's assistant was an anarchist. It might have been the stresses on the hive, or it might have been luck. Wherever it came from, the mutation was viable. She tucked a number of her own eggs in beeswax and wasp paper among the pigeon holes of the library, and fed the larvae their milk and bread in secret. To her sons in their capped silk cradles, and they were all sons, she whispered the precepts she had developed while calculating flight paths and azimuths, that there should be no queen and no state, and that, as in the wasp nest, the males should labor and profit equally with the females. In their sleep and slow transformation, they heard her teachings and instructions, and when they chewed their way out of their cells and out of the wasp nest, they made their way to the hive. The damage to the nest was discovered, of course, but by then the anarchist was dead of old age. She had done impeccable work, her tutor sighed, looking over the filigree of her inscriptions, but the brilliant were subject to mental aberrations, were they not? He buried beneath grumblings and labors of his fondness for her, which had become a grief to him and a political liability, and he never again took on any student from the hive who showed a glint of talent. Though they had the bitter smell of the wasp nest in their hair, the anarchist's twenty sons were permitted to wander freely through the hive, as if it was assumed that they were either spies or unofficial business. When the new queen emerged from her chamber, They joined unnoticed the other drones in the nuptial flight. Two succeeded in mating with her. Those who failed and survived spoke afterward in hushed tones of what had been done for the sake of the ideal. Before they died, they took propolis and oak apple ink and inscribed upon the lintels of the hive, in a shorthand they had developed, the story of the first anarchist and her twenty sons. Anarchism, being a heritable trait in bees, A number of the daughters of the new queen found themselves questioning the purpose of the monarchy. Two were taken by the wasps and taught to read and write. On one of their visits to the hive, they spotted the history of their forefathers, and, being excellent scholars, soon figured out the translation. They found their sisters in the hive, who were unquiet in soul and whispered to them the strange knowledge they had learned among the wasps. Astronomy, military, strategy... The state of the world beyond the farthest flights of the bees hitherto educated as dancers and architects nurses and foragers the bees were full of a new wonder stranger even than the first day they flew from the hive and felt the sun on their backs govern us they said to the two wasp-taught anarchists but they refused a perfect society needs no rulers they said knowledge and authority ought to be held in common In order to imagine a new existence, we must free ourselves from the structures of both our failed government and the unjustifiable hegemony of the wasp nests. Hear what you can hear and learn what you can learn while we remain among them, but be ready. It was the first summer in Yue without the immemorial hum of the cartographer wasps. In the orchards, though their skins split with sweetness, fallen fruit lay unmolested, and children played barefoot with impunity. One of the villager's daughters, in her third year in an agricultural college, came home in the back of a pickup truck at the end of July. She thumped her single suitcase against the gate before opening it to scatter the chickens, then raised the latch and swung the iron aside, and was immediately wrapped in a flying hug. Once she'd disentangled herself from brother and parents and liberally distributed kisses, she listened to the news she'd missed, how the cows were dying from drinking stonecutter's dust in the streams, How grain prices were falling everywhere, despite the drought, and how her brother, little fool that he was, had torn down a wasp nest and received a face full of red and white lumps for it. One of the most detailed wasps' maps had reached the capital, she was told, and a bureaucrat had arrived in a sleek black car. But because the wasps were all dead, he could report little more than a prank, a freak, or a miracle. There were no further inquiries. Her brother produced for her inspection the brittle, boiled bodies of several wasps in a glass jar, along with one of the smaller maps. She tickled him until he surrendered his trophies, promised him a basket of peaches in return, and let herself be fed to tautness. Then, to her family's dismay, she wrote an urgent letter to the Academy of Sciences and packed a satchel with clothes and cash. If she could find one more nest of wasps, she said, It would make their fortune and her name, but it had to be done quickly. In the morning, before the cockerels woke and while the sky was still purple, she hopped onto her old bicycle and rode down the dusty path. Bees do not fly at night or lie to each other, but the anarchists had learned both from the wasps. On a warm, clear evening, they left the hive at last, flying west in a small, tight cloud. Around them swelled the voices of summer insects, strange and disquieting. Several miles west of the old hive and the wasp nest, in a lightning-scarred elm, the anarchists had built up a small stock of stolen honey, sealed in wax and paper. They rested there for the night, in cells of clean white wax, and in the morning they arose to the building of their city. The first business of the new colony was the laying of eggs, which a number of workers set to, And provisions for winter. One egg from the old queen brought from the hive in an anarchist's jaws was hatched and raised as a new mother. Uncrowned and unconcerned, she too laid mortar and wax, chewed wood to make paper, and fanned the storerooms with her wings. The anarchists labored secretly, but rapidly, drones alongside workers, because the copper taste of autumn was in the air. None had seen a winter before, but the memory of the species is subtle and long, and in their hearts, despite the summer sun, they felt an imminent darkness. The flowers were fading in the fields. Every day the anarchists added to their coffers of warm gold and built their white walls higher. Every day the air grew a little crisper, the grass a little drier. They sang as they worked, sometimes ballads from the old hive, sometimes anthems of their own devising, and for a time they were happy. Too soon the leaves turned flame colors and blew from the trees, and then there were no more flowers. The anarchists pressed down the lid on the last vat of honey and wondered what was coming. Four miles away, at the first touch of cold, the wasps licked shut their paper doors and slept in a tight knot around the foundress. In both beehives, the bees huddled together, awake and watchful, warming themselves with the thrumming of their wings. The anarchists murmured comfort to each other. There will be more after us. It'll breed out again. We are only the beginning. There will be more. Snow fell silently outside. The snow was ankle deep, and the river iced over when the girl from Yiwei reached up into the empty branches of an oak tree and plucked down the paper castle of a nest. The wasps within, drowsy with cold, murmured but did not stir. In their barracks the soldiers dreamed of the unexplored south and battles in strange cities among strange peoples, and scouts dreamed of the corpses of starved and frozen deer. The cartographers dreamed of the changes that winter would work on the landscape, the diverted creeks and dead trees they would have to note down. They did not feel the burlap bag that settled around them, nor the crunch of tires on the frozen road. She had spent weeks tramping through the countryside, questioning beekeepers and villagers' children, peering up into trees and into hives before she found the last wasps from Yiwei. Then she had had to wait for winter and the anesthetizing cold. But now, back in the warmth of her own room, she broke open the soft pages of the nest and pushed aside the heaps of glistening wasps until she found the foundress herself stumbling on uncertain legs. When it thawed, she would breed new foundresses among the village's apricot trees. The letters she received indicated a great demand for them in the capital particularly from army generals and the captains of scientific explorations. In years to come, the village of Yiwei would be known for its delicately inscribed maps, the legends almost too small to see, and not for its barley and oats, its velvety apricots and glassy pears. In the spring, the old beehive awoke to find the wasps gone, like a nightmare that evaporates by day. It was difficult to believe, but when not the slightest scrap of wasp paper could be found, the whole hive sang with delight. Even the queen, who had been coached from the pupa on the details of her client's state and the conditions by which she ruled, and who had felt, perhaps, more sympathy for the wasps than she should have, cleared her throat and trilled once or twice. If she did not sing so loudly or joyously as the rest, only a few noticed, and the winter had been a hard one anyhow. The maps had vanished with the wasps. No more would be made. Those who had studied among the wasps began to draft memoranda and the first independent decrees of queen and council. To defend against future invasions, it was decided that a detachment of bees would fly the borders of their land and carry home reports of what they found. It was on one of these patrols that a small hive was discovered in the fork of an elm tree. Bees lay dead and brittle around it, no identifiable queen among them. Not a trace of honey remained in the storehouse. The dark wax of its walls had been gnawed to rags. Even the brood cells had been scraped clean. But in the last intact hexagons they found, curled and capped in wax, scrawled on page after page, Words of revolution. They read in silence. Right, one said to the other, and she did. That story was titled, The Cartographer Wasps and the Anarchist Bees. It's from ClarksWorldMagazine.com. At least, that's where I found it. Looks like it's been published in all kinds of places. Anyway, that story was by E. Lily Yu. Here's a story from Appalachian Magazine. This is entitled Southern Life Eating Breakfast at Night. I've been privileged to travel the planet and have enjoyed experiencing the unique cultural oddities of peoples most will never even know exist. Still, even with four decades of Roman under my belt, I've come to the opinion that no culture is as colorful or wonderful as that of my own people, Appalachian Americans. I would describe my people as being salt of the earth. With this being said, it should also be noted that although the average son or daughter of the mountain would readily give you the shirt off their back if necessary, they're also ready to fight you at the drop of a hat if necessary. I've even known a handful of Appalachian folk who would purposely drop the hat just to tussle. Mountain people have a long-standing reputation of being passionate, creative, and above all else, industrious people, And it's for these reasons that I'm honored to identify myself as belonging to this incredible club. Fortunately for me, my father, mother, and grandparents were no exception to the Appalachian work ethic. My dad would often speak of laziness as if it were some type of terrible disease. In our home, there was nothing worse a person could be than lazy. Yet, before my dad would step a single foot outside of our house each morning in order to begin his average day, which would most likely include feeding cows, fixing fences, hoeing the garden, and chopping wood before he would go to his real job down at the factory, my mother would prepare him a hearty breakfast. Breakfast in our home was spoken of with a holy reverence. It was seen more than as merely a meal. I was taught that it was the very fuel to whatever plans or work I would engage in that day. Because of its almost sacred status, I suppose it should come as no surprise that it most often included the largest spread of the day. While lunch, dinner as my dad would call it, was typically a sandwich and pop, breakfast included coffee, milk, cathead biscuits, gravy, eggs, and pork in some form, typically either sausage or ham more than a time of gluttony or self-indulgence, it was preached that the bigger my appetite for breakfast, the more I would have the ability to accomplish that day. As I got a little older, moved out of the house, attended college, and discovered the fast food drive-thru, almost out of a form of rebellion, I found myself skipping this all-important meal in an effort to enjoy my newfound freedom. Fast forward 15 years and with a family of my own, I'm being drawn back to breakfast once again. It is for myself and so many others from my generation, the ultimate comfort food for the weary Appalachian soul. Living in a time period when every penny and second matters, the ease and affordability of fixing biscuits, gravy, and eggs has created an allure that can only be known by someone whose childhood closely mirrored mine. For us, breakfast is so much more than a meal. It's a nostalgic feeling of comfort, transporting us to an inexplainable sacred place. Because breakfast is so beloved to so many country folk, there's a long-standing and ever-growing trend of preparing it and eating it in the late evening, at the final meal of the day. This has been largely undocumented, but it is ever so popular. Breakfast isn't just the meal you eat for your body's fuel each morning. It can be the precise boost your soul needs every once in a while in the evening. Breakfast is great, especially at 7 p.m., Here's another one from yourghoststories.com This is entitled "Smoky Face and it's written by SCE93 Apparently, this also happened in Kentucky I don't want to start off by saying I never believed in ghosts I was always one who speculated between the existence of the paranormal versus fantasy My biggest encounter happened about two and a half years ago It was a one time encounter, but I feel as though little things happened to show me that I'm not alone. One night during the summer of 2012, I was on the phone with a boyfriend I was with at the time. We were talking about random things like we always did. It was four in the morning, and I decided to go outside for a smoke. I went on my back porch, which was just a very small deck and steps. I sat at the top of the deck and lit up a cigarette. I was facing towards the steps while I was still on the phone. I remember that I closed my eyes for a second, and when I opened them, this smoke-like face pushed itself into my face. I could see eyes, nose, lips, and the facial expression of evil. I gasped and said, oh my god, as the face pushed itself through my own, I heard this low growl. It wasn't loud or angry, but almost as if it was a sigh. It scared me so bad that I jerked my body back and fell against the wooden porch. My boyfriend at the time continued to ask me what was wrong until I calmed down. I was trying to make sense of what had happened. I was trying to debunk it by the cigarette smoke, but the smoky-like cloud was as gray as thundering clouds, whereas cigarette smoke is bluish white. I don't think I could ever forget that face. After two years, I ended up moving to Arkansas to be with another guy in the military. We stayed at an apartment close to his base. After a few months there, I felt that I was being watched all the time. The apartment was hardly ever empty of people considering there was four of us living there, but I liked staying in the bedroom alone. At this one time, I had this overwhelming feeling in the middle of the night after I woke up. I could feel a cold presence in the room, and I began to get terrified. I lifted my head up to see if anything was in there that I could see, and I heard the spring door stopper in the wall get struck as if it were bent back and released. It made a loud metallic sound as it shook. The door was closed but started to creak open. My boyfriend at the time was in the living room at his computer workstation. I was afraid to speak or move because I had the mindset that acknowledging the spirits would make them more active. I just took a deep breath and got up out of the bed and ran into the living room. I explained to my boyfriend that there was something in there and I didn't want to go back to bed alone. And of course, like most men, he played it off as some joke and told me to just go back to sleep. Another night, I was in the bathroom in the master bedroom. I was brushing my teeth and in the mirror I thought I saw something move. I turned behind me to see nothing was there. I walked into the bedroom and did a quick peek around and heard something fall off my boyfriend's gun safe behind me. A bottle of water was in the floor next to it, which had been on that safe for a few days. Now, the first encounter can be debunked as cigarette smoke, but the face was too distinguishable for me to just make an excuse for it. The second encounter could be debunked by the doorstopper, No one hardly ever looks at a door stopper because it's usually behind doors. It could have already been stuck against something and then broke free due to the increase in pressure in the spring. The third encounter could be debunked because of the weight distribution throughout the room, but I thought I had saw something move before that when I was in the bathroom. But honestly, I believe it was all due to spiritual encounters. And since we're at it, here's another one from yourghoststories.com. This is entitled, The Hole in the Wall. My husband and I moved into a house not far from my parents. It was family owned. With me being able to see ghosts and other paranormal things, I always walked through a house before deciding if I wanted to live there. My walkthrough was great. No sign of anything. That was a first for us. We moved in. My husband was working a night shift job at the time and I was alone most of the day and night. I was up late unpacking the boxes that went into the kitchen. I had gotten to the plates. I washed them and put them in the cabinet and turned around to start on another box. The plates were back in the box. I stopped and thought I could have sworn I put those away. I just let it go, not thinking anything else about it. So I put them back into the cabinet and moved to my next task. After I'd gotten the kitchen put together and cleaned up the mess from cleaning and unpacking, I was ready for bed. I crawled into the bed and almost instantly fell asleep. At 4 a.m. I heard music coming from the attic. So, I crawled out of bed and walked to the stairs, opened the door and walked to the landing and peered over the banister. Nothing. I looked for a music box, not one to be found, so brushed it off again. I went back to bed. Nothing else happened for around a month or so, which I was thankful for. After about three months of us living there, things started to get worse. Now there was no denying it. Something was in our house. But I hadn't seen a ghost or spirit, nothing. Whatever it was, it was something that didn't want to be seen. The night my husband went back to work, I was sitting on the couch watching TV and a huge crash came from the attic. I grabbed a knife from the kitchen as I walked through to the stairs to the attic once again. I threw open the door and slammed it against the wall. I made it to the landing when I felt a hand push me a little. Not enough to make me lose my balance, but just enough for me to stumble a little. But I still pushed myself up the rest of the stairs. I looked around for anything heavy or big enough to make a loud thud like I had heard. No boxes had fallen. Everything was in its place but I noticed a hole in the back wall of the attic. I went back downstairs and grabbed my husband's flashlight and made my way back to the hole in the wall. I shined the light. What I found chilled me to the bone. I had found a human skeleton. I screamed and ran back downstairs, called the police and then my husband at work. The police had got to the house before my husband did because he had to wait for his replacement to get there before he could leave. I was sitting on the couch explaining to the sheriff what had happened. I went through it so many times that night it was unbelievable. One question that he had asked me was what had made me look in the hole in the wall. I said I didn't know. I was just looking for the source of the thump I'd heard coming from the attic. By the time my husband got home, my house was crawling with policemen. He came through the door as they were bringing out the skeleton. A few weeks later, I finally heard from the police about the skeleton It turned out to be a little boy the age of 12, and the cause of death was determined to be murder. The crime lab had done a reconstruction on his skull, and the face they had come up with matched a missing person report from about 30 years before I found him. His name was John. By that time, I was starting to see the ghosts that were in my house. A man, and woman, and a little boy. I was finally able to get them to talk to me. The little boy was John, the man was Oliver, and the woman was Lily. Oliver was just a mean man, also a distant family member, and his wife was Lily. She was attached to the old foot pedal sewing machine in the attic. Lily didn't bother me. In fact, I got the feeling that she was protecting us from Oliver. John was Oliver's son. He had cheated on his wife, Lily. John had come to him and told him that he was his son. Oliver had killed his own son. John had no other living family besides myself and my mother and grandmother. We wanted to give him a proper resting place, so we did. After his funeral, John had moved on. He was finally at peace. The next morning, after we took care of John, things were so much lighter in the house. I had no worries, or so I thought. After my husband went to work, I decided to clean the house back up. Once I was finished, I went to bed. I felt someone watching me. I thought it was Oliver, but it wasn't. I made myself wake up to look. I saw a man standing in my bedroom doorway, but his hands and feet were hooves, and his head was that of a goat. Needless to say, I didn't sleep any anymore that night. The next night, I was laying in bed alone on my husband's side of the bed, and a knife that came flying through the air and landed on my pillow. My husband had come home early that night and he found me sitting outside on the porch, shaking. He asked what happened and I told him. That was our last night in the house. Since I am a medium, I will always see them and feel them and hear them, but I don't have to deal with a ghost trying to kill me. This next story is about the HAARP, Harp weather facility that was up in Alaska. And uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other night and we got talking about them old boys from Georgia that got arrested for breaking into the place and I realized that that kind of story would be the perfect thing for this show. So, I found an article that's not actually about the guys from Georgia but about the facility itself and what supposedly went on there. This is from wanttoknow.info It is entitled HARP Weather Control Is the HARP project a weather control weapon? H-A-A-R-P The High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program was a little-known, yet critically important U.S. military defense project, which generated quite a bit of controversy over its alleged weather control capabilities, and much more. The project was shuttered by the military in 2013 after attracting large amounts of negative publicity, though harp like research undoubtedly continues in other secret projects. This essay reveals major deception promulgated by those involved to lead the public to believe HARP was simply a research facility with little practical military value. Though denied by HARP project officials, some respected researchers allege that the electromagnetic warfare capabilities of the project were designed to forward the U.S. military's stated goal of achieving full spectrum dominance by the year 2020 and of owning the weather in 2025. Others go so far as to claim that HARP technologies have been and continue to be used for weather control to cause earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, to disrupt global communication systems, and more. These researchers point to major aspects of the program which are still kept secret for alleged reasons of national security. The US patent of a key developer of HARP and other documentary evidence support these claims. And there is no doubt that electromagnetic weapons capable of being used in warfare do exist. The HARP project's $300 million price tag also suggests more was going on than meets the eye. According to the original HARP website, Harp is a scientific endeavor aimed at studying the properties and behavior of the ionosphere, with particular emphasis on being able to understand and use it to enhance communications and surveillance systems for both civilian and defense purposes. The ionosphere is the delicate upper layer of our atmosphere which ranges from about 30 miles to 600 miles above the Earth's surface. The Harp Project website acknowledged that experiments were conducted which used electromagnetic frequencies to fire pulsed, directed energy beams in order to temporarily excite a limited area of the ionosphere. Some scientists state that purposefully disturbing this sensitive layer could have major and even disastrous consequences. Concerned HARP researchers like Dr. Michael Chasadovsky of the University of Ottawa and Alaska's Dr. Nick Bijich, son of a U.S. congressman, present evidence suggesting that these disturbances can even be used to trigger earthquakes, affect hurricanes, and for weather control. Dr. Bernard Eastland is the scientist whose name is most associated with the creation and development of the HARP project. His revealing website provides reliable information on his involvement with the project. A 1987 patent issued to Dr. Eastland is titled Method and Apparatus for Altering a Region in the Earth's Atmosphere, Ionosphere and or Magnetosphere. In this patent, which sets the stage for HARP, Dr. Eastland makes a number of fascinating statements which clearly contradict the claim that it is only being used for research and not for military purposes or such purposes as weather control. Here are a few key statements taken verbatim from the patent. The temperature of the ionosphere has been raised by hundreds of degrees in these experiments. A means and method is provided to cause interference with or even total disruption of communications over a very large portion of the Earth. This invention could be employed to disrupt not only land-based communications, both civilian and military, but also airborne communications and sea communications. This would have significant military implications. It is possible to take advantage of one or more such beams to carry out a communications network even though the rest of the world's communications are disrupted. It can be used to an advantage for positive communication and eavesdropping purposes. Exceedingly large amounts of power can be very efficiently produced and transmitted. This invention has a phenomenal variety of potential future developments. Large regions of the atmosphere could be lifted to an unexpectedly high altitude so that missiles encounter unexpected and unplanned drag forces with resultant destruction or deflection. Weather modification is possible by, for example, altering upper atmosphere wind patterns or altering solar absorption patterns by constructing one or more plumes of atmospheric particles which will act as a lens or focusing device. Ozone, nitrogen, etc. concentrations in the atmosphere could be artificially increased. Electromagnetic pulse defenses are also possible. The Earth's magnetic field could be decreased or disrupted at appropriate altitudes to modify or eliminate the magnetic field. For those with any background in science, you might find it quite revealing to explore this patent in more detail. And remember that since the time of this patent, in which Alaska is mentioned several times as the ideal location... The government fully acknowledges that it built a massive array of antennas in Alaska with the capability of disturbing the ionosphere, exactly as described in Eastland's patent. Two key major media documentaries, one by Canada's public broadcasting network, CBC, and the other by the History Channel, reveal the inner workings of the HARP project in a most powerful way. The very well-researched CBC documentary includes this key quote. It isn't just conspiracy theorists who are concerned about Harp. In January of 1999, the European Union called the project a global concern and passed a resolution calling for more information on its health and environmental risks. Despite those concerns, officials at Harp insist the project is nothing more sinister than a radio science research facility. The European Union document which brings HARP and similar electromagnetic weapons into question can be verified here. The actual wording at bullet point 24 in this telling document states that the EU considers HARP, by virtue of its far-reaching impact on the environment, to be a global concern and calls for its legal, ecological, and ethical implications to be examined by an international independent body before any further research and testing. This revealing document further states that the EU regrets the repeated refusal of the U.S. government to give evidence on the project. This engaging 15-minute CBC documentary is available for free viewing. An even more detailed and revealing 45-minute History Channel documentary on Harp and other secret weapons used for electromagnetic warfare is available here. And those are links which will be in the show notes. Here are two quotes from the History Channel documentary. Electromagnetic weapons pack an invisible wallop hundreds of times more powerful than the electrical current in a lightning bolt. One can blast enemy missiles out of the sky, another could be used to blind soldiers on the battlefield, still another to control an unruly crowd by burning the surface of their skin. If detonated over a large city, an electromagnetic weapon could destroy all electronics in seconds. They all use directed energy to create a powerful electromagnetic pulse. Directed energy is such a powerful technology it could be used to heat the ionosphere to turn weather into a weapon of war. Imagine using a flood to destroy a city, or tornadoes to decimate an approaching army in the desert. If an electromagnetic pulse went off over a city, basically all the electronic things in your home would wink and go out, and they would be permanently destroyed. The military has spent a huge amount of time on weather modification as a concept for battle environments. Another video along similar lines, the excellent History Channel documentary titled The Invisible Machine, Electromagnetic Warfare, is available here. For all those who still doubt that such devastating secret weapons have been developed, here's an intriguing quote from an article in New Zealand's leading newspaper, the New Zealand Herald. Top secret wartime experiments were conducted off the coast of Auckland to perfect a tidal wave bomb, declassified files reveal. United States defense chiefs said that if the project had been completed before the end of the war, it could have played a role as effective as that of the atom bomb. Details of the tsunami bomb, known as Project SEAL, are contained in 53-year-old documents released by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. If the military secretly developed a weapon which could cause the tsunami well over half a century ago, what kind of advanced deadly weapons might be available now? And why is it that the general public still doesn't know about secret weapons developed over 70 years ago? Clearly, the military has the capability to cause a tsunami and likely to cause earthquakes and hurricanes as well. To understand why the media isn't covering these highly critical issues, see this revealing essay. And that's a link which will also be in the show notes. It's time to take action to spread the word on this vital topic. And for another excellent documentary on harp, which includes an extensive interview with Dr. Bernard Eastland, watch Holes in Heaven. Having interpreted for top generals in my work as a language interpreter for the U.S. Department of State, I learned that military planners are always interested in developing the most devastating weapons possible. Yet these weapons are kept secret as long as possible, allegedly for reasons of national security. The many layers of intense secrecy both in the military and government result in very few people being aware of the gruesome capabilities for death and destruction. The massive Manhattan Project is one such example. The building of an entire city to support the project in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, was successfully kept secret even from the state's governor. The stealth bomber was kept top secret for many years, and the public still has no way of knowing its full capabilities. It is through the use of the highly organized military and intelligence services that the power elite of our world, in cooperation with key allies in government and corporate ownership of the media, are able to carry out major cover ups and secret operations like those involved with HARP. Some researchers have raised questions about the possible involvement of HARP in major disasters like the earthquakes in Haiti and Japan, the Indonesian tsunami, and Hurricane Katrina. Could these have been harp experiments gone awry? Might they even have been caused by rogue elements which gained control of this devastating technology? Disasters like this happen naturally on a regular basis. Yet if you begin to research, there is some high strangeness around some of these disasters. The evidence is inconclusive. Yet with the known and unknown major destructive capabilities of this weapon, serious questions remain. The capability of influencing and even controlling human emotions has been studied by the military and intelligence services of the world for many decades. A concise, information-packed description of such programs with links to declassified CIA documents for verification is available here. One thoroughly researched book titled Mind Controllers describes an effective method of remotely influencing human emotions. Here's a key quote from this revealing book. With the use of powerful computers, segments of human emotions which include anger, anxiety, sadness, fear, embarrassment, jealousy, resentment, shame, and terror have been identified and isolated within the EEG signals as emotion signature clusters. Their relevant frequencies and amplitudes have been measured. Then the very frequency amplitude cluster is synthesized and stored on another computer, Each one of these negative emotions is properly and separately tagged. They are then placed on the silent sound carrier frequencies and could silently trigger the occurrence of the same basic emotion in another human being. An excellent ten-page summary of the book is available here. For the section focused on non-lethal weapons, which includes the above quote, see this page. And that's a couple more links. Click through to the show notes to see those. Using HARP's powerful broadcast capabilities, it is within the realm of possibility that powerful antennas like that of HARP and major facilities elsewhere could triangulate on an exact location anywhere in the world and send highly intensified frequencies, matching the emotion signature of a desired emotion to produce anger or any other desired emotion in a group of people as the human mind naturally entrains to strong frequencies around it. This may all sound quite unbelievable to those who are not versed in the secret ways of the military intelligence complex, yet there is strong evidence to support this possibility. Here is the abstract of US patent number 5,159,703 approved in 1992, over 25 years ago. A silent communications system in which non oral carriers In the very low or very high audio frequency range, or in the adjacent ultrasonic frequency spectrum, are amplitude or frequency modulated with the desired intelligence and propagated acoustically or vibrationally for inducement into the brain, typically through the use of loudspeakers, earphones, or piezoelectric transducers. The modulated carriers may be transmitted directly in real time, or may be conveniently recorded and stored on mechanical, magnetic, or optical media, for delayed or repeated transmission to the listener. You can view this entire patent on the US Patent and Trade Office website at this link. Below are the listed objects of the invention in that patent. 1. To provide a technique for producing subliminal presentation which is inaudible to the listeners yet is perceived and demodulated by the ear for use by the subconscious mind. Number 2. To provide a technique for transmitting inaudible subliminal information to the listeners at a constant high level of signal strength and on a clear band of frequencies. Number three, to provide a technique for producing inaudible subliminal presentations to which music or other foreground programming may be added if desired. In other words, the subliminal messages could be inserted into TV and radio waves without the awareness of the listener or viewer. Such messages could be easily beamed from satellites as well, triangulated on a desired location. Using the incredible broadcasting capabilities of HARP, these subliminal messages could conceivably even be broadcast over a larger area to create the desired effect on an entire population. Sounds scary, doesn't it? So why is this not being discussed more widely? An informative paper on the usage of the silent sound technology and its implications is available here. At least a dozen other patents have been approved related to the usage of technology designed to cause subliminal changes in desired targets. A list and brief descriptions of many of these patents with links for verification is available on this webpage. Here's a sample quote from patent number 6,506,148. It is therefore possible to manipulate the nervous system of a subject by pulsing images displayed on a nearby computer monitor or TV set. For the latter, the image pulsing may be embedded in the program material, or it may be overlaid by modulating a video stream. Clearly, technologies have been developed and refined with the specific purpose of passing subliminal messages unbeknownst to the target. The capability of remotely influencing emotions through the use of certain wavelengths has been successfully demonstrated. The implications are huge, yet there is exceedingly little regulation of how this technology will be used. By educating yourself on this important matter and spreading the word to your friends and colleagues, you can make a difference in building the necessary momentum to bring these matters to light and to ensure they're not used in disempowering ways. Jesse Ventura, the former Navy SEAL who turned pro wrestler only to then become governor of Minnesota, has a TV special on HARP that is a bit sensationalized yet contains useful information. You can watch this revealing program online at this link. HARP was officially shuttered by the military in 2013. The closure provided the excuse to stop the live broadcasting of HARP's signals on a public website which gave strong evidence of links between harp activities and major weather catastrophes. Operation of the facility was transferred to the University of Alaska in 2015. Undoubtedly, harp-like weather control and military research continues elsewhere. With all the intense secrecy around the project for reasons of national security, it's hard to know what's really happening. But clearly, the public is largely being kept in the dark. That concludes episode 24 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.